Welcome to Archonnect Sessions, episode 28. On this week's show, we have Ned Kramer, editor-in-chief of Architect Magazine, joining us to talk about the changing landscape of architecture journalism, architectural education, the upcoming AIA convention, and his career trajectory after not realizing his original dream of becoming the world's first architect pope. I'm Paul, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Donna, Amelia, and Ken. Amelia, how was your week? Pretty good. Yeah. I spent this past Saturday at the Archonnect party with the Graham Foundation that we hosted at the VDL house for um, the book launch of Treatise. It was great. It was a lot of fun. I was there too. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I remember seeing your awesome Hawaiian style shirt. It was very, very chic. Oh, there aren't eagles in Hawaii. <laughs> <laughs> Not that we know of. Not that we know Actually, of. Actually, maybe there are. I don't know. Yeah, it was pretty great time. Such a good turnout and such a great crowd. And I was super impressed by those cocktails. My God, those were, uh, I probably was feeling them a little bit later, but it was really delicious. The um, Konyashenti stuff. That was great. Was it a coffee cocktail? Mm-hmm. Yeah. He made a cocktail with cold brew coffee mixed with rye and a little uh, vanilla syrup and then shaken with some ice. And it was pretty delicious. It was a hit. Kept people talking all night. I'll bet. Yeah. We had people staying... We had like a nominal end time of, I think, like 9 p.m. And people were there until yeah. like 11. I felt kind of sorry for the couple like, <laughs> of kids who were taking care of the space and like making sure people didn't fall down the many steps or anything. But uh, everyone did a great job and was such a great turnout. And it was just a really cozy event. So did the VDL house reach capacity? Because you guys were worried about that. It was perfect. It was totally packed. There were people in the courtyard, people in the living room, on the in the penthouse floor, the second level in the front. And... It was just perfectly distributed. Everything was great. The weather was ideal. And uh, Jimenez gave a great little talk. And that was about the extent of the programming of the event. It was really more of a social mingle and talk and drink kind of event. And that's what we planned on doing. And that's what it was. And everyone had a great time. Yeah, it was really great. I wish you guys could have been there. Maybe next time we'll, we'll fly you guys next out. Time. <laughs> <laughs> we didn't do any recording. No. No, no, you didn't record anything? No, we didn't. There's a few photographs on various blogs, and I saw a couple end up on Facebook. So there's some record of the event. But Oh, yeah. My friend Diana, too, who's a really great professional photographer, was uh, taking a bunch of photographs, too, that we'll be sharing on Archonnect when we post a little summary of the event on, on the site. And there was at least one person there who told me to my face that he recognized my voice from the podcast. Aww. And I don't know if he was just being nice, but it made my heart flutter. I was very, very flattered. He didn't make any further qualitative claims as to the, <laughs> in the podcast. He just said, I recognize your voice. I was like, awesome. And I didn't ask Donna, but I've known that people have confused our voices. So yes, he didn't refer to me as Donna throughout the event. So I think he knew okay. who it was. <laughs> <laughs> And he didn't call you Ken, so no. you're, you're probably pretty safe. Yeah, <laughs> process of elimination. We're done. Yep, yep. So how about you guys? Donna, what did you do this weekend? I did not do much this weekend. I am getting ready right now to fly to Syracuse, New York, Wednesday, and I will be there for the... Uh, Michael Speaks invited me out for the Syracuse College of Architecture Super Jury. I think he called it the Super Jury. And I think, Paul, you've done this before. It's They bring in a whole bunch of uh, crits, and uh, it's a day-long event, and uh, I'm really looking forward to it. Yeah, that's going to be great. Looking forward to hearing about it next week. Yeah, I'm basically just prepping for that, missing a couple days of work and flying out. So that's what I'm up to. Ken, what are you doing? Just finished a project, went out for permitting today and bidding. Was able to meet with my friends, the butchers, and they finally, it seems like they've secured a space. So um, they're going to get started again on their project, which is great for them. That was fast. Yeah, yeah they found a local restaurateur who ha owns a building and she has an available space. 
And I was super excited to find out that they were available to take the space. And now because of that kind of networking and that partnership in the space, they're going to be catering. I don't know if it's an after party, but uh, the Alabama Shakes are coming to town and Father John Misty and they're going to be catering those events. So it's pretty, pretty cool for them. Yeah, I think it's going to work out pretty well. So I met a couple of architects from Minneapolis this weekend because I was giving a tour to a, a group. It was a, a group of people that are associated with the Frank Lloyd Wright Conservancy out of Chicago, but these two architects were from Minneapolis and they came down and saw Marlon Blackwell's Visitor's Pavilion at the Indianapolis Museum of Art. So I was giving, I gave a little tour up to the group on Saturday morning and I mentioned Minneapolis and said, oh, I have a friend who's working on this project for the herbivorous butchers. And the one guy said, the what? And I said, they're like, they do, you know, vegan meat and his face lit up and he said, oh yes, I've heard about them. It's all, you know, none of it uses any meat, but it all apparently tastes exactly like meat. So yeah, the word's getting out. Yeah. And we'll all get to sample some in Atlanta. I'm bringing a, a whole like smorgasbord of meat. I hope you guys have like I'm super excited to take some. I, I realized well, I, I bought all this stuff on, I said, I I bought all of this stuff on Saturday and I'm like, and I got home, I'm like, I don't even know if they're going to like this. I might go back, I, I might go with meat and have to throw half of it out. No. We'll make sure that doesn't happen. But I think what I picked you'll like. If if we don't like it <laughs> in, you know, a burger or whatever, we'll just soak it in bourbon and, and serve it on toothpicks. Exactly. Because be I'm bringing bourbon. So yeah, we'll be good. <laughs> yeah. Donna brings the bourbon. Ken brings the meatless sponge. The meatless meat. <laughs> yes. And one of them is like a, a Hawaiian kind of uh, ribs. Oh, so it's man. got this um, pineapple flavor to it. So it's, uh, I'm pretty excited for you guys to try the meatless meat. So I had that going on. Went to see the Avengers, which is, you know, which is a lot of fun. Yeah. Um, you were, t- Paul, you were talking about before about uh, coffee and cocktails. I went to a place here in Minneapolis that they make coffee with uh, different types of bitters. So I got to experience that 0.0025% alcohol in my coffee. (laughs) So did the taste outweigh the lack of alcohol content? Yeah. I mean, it's funny to think there's this alcohol and it's, you know, there's more alcohol in your mouthwash probably than in these coffee drinks. So it's, you're paying a little more for the idea (laughs) of uh, alcohol in your coffee, but none of the benefits but did it taste good? They were great. You know, I, I'm always keen to stuff like that where, you know, people are trying something different. So I'm, I'll am i be going back there, except the pancakes suck. Aww. So he was making emoji pancakes. So he made emoji, the bullshit emoji oh. pancakes. <laughs> he was making that. And, and then he was making Mario Brothers pancakes. So I'm just, this is like too much, but they weren't even that good. I'm a pancake minimalist. As far as I'm concerned, pancakes are round, period. Minimal. <laughs> they form follows function, right? You pour the batter. That's, yeah, I'm a minimalist. I would feel like there's a lot of psychosomatic things happening in this menu. Like if you just put bitters into the coffee, you convince people that it's actually alcoholic. It's just like you put an emoji in the form of a pancake and then they suddenly feel that way. Hopefully they don't. Hopefully they don't want to think about taking a shit while they're eating a <laughs> bullshit shaped emoji pancake. It's cute, but it doesn't sound like a, a core food marketing strategy. Yeah. It's not that cute. (laughs) (laughs) It probably would have been better if he actually, you know, created a sentence. You know how uh, that's the thing now to to write a sentence with using emojis. So, but he wasn't that kind of Uh, uh, with it. Pancake poetry. That's a lot of work. Yeah. Pancake poetry. That'd be pretty good. And then the other thing, which I'm happy to talk about, if we want to talk about it later, is uh, Donna shared with me a bit of news about the AIA that I'm kind of excited to get out there and and talk about. (laughs) Let's save that. We'll be there next week. Yeah. Yeah, that'd be great. (laughs) Paul, tell us what you're doing. I am nodding off 
No. Temp- <laughs> no. I've had a very long day. I'm in London right now. I haven't really slept in, uh, since Sunday morning. It's Monday evening right now that we're recording this. And I'm here until Friday and uh, having a great time so far. Are there any buildings like 2C buildings for sure on your list or what that you can talk about or is some of this being saved for later? Well, the trip isn't so much about going to see any buildings in particular, but I am planning on visiting uh, Zaha Hadid's office tomorrow. And um, awesome. And when we uh, met with Thomas Heatherwick last week, we tried to coordinate an office visit at his studio that I'm still trying to work out, which I'm hoping uh, I'll be able to do this week. And I'll be spending some time with some AA students. And I was really excited today. I wandered into a record shop here called Rough Trade, which is pretty well known. And I noticed that a band that I really love, uh, Django Django, which is from the UK, they just dropped their latest album today. And so I went in and picked it up and I was talking to the guy that worked there and I he ended up giving me a pass for their uh, album release party tomorrow night. So I was wow. super excited about that. Awesome. So yeah, everything's just kind of uh, coming together. I, I walked, I think, nine miles today just all around the city and I, I love this city so far. It's a really beautiful place and I'm looking forward to this week. Hopefully I'll have some exciting stories to share on next week's show. So we have a uh, pretty fun guest this week. Very fun. <laughs> Very fun. Yeah, I guess about a week ago was that we spoke with Ned Kramer of Hanley Wood. Thanks to Donna, because you met him at Grassroots. Is that correct? Yeah. So I went to the AIA Grassroots events in Washington, D.C. in March. And people who were running for national office for the AIA did a panel discussion that Ned Kramer came up on stage and moderated. And I have been a huge fan of Ned since he started writing these editorials for Architect Magazine that are, in my mind, he always he very frequently puts out a very personal side to these editorials. So I feel like he's really revealing something about himself and about how people respond to architecture in a lot of his editorials. And so I have been a fan of his for a long time. And when I saw him there, I basically accosted him after the panel discussion and said, hey, can you be on the podcast? And he was very excited to do it. And we got schedules organized. And I was really interested in talking with him about how he ended up starting in architecture school and then ended up going into the editorial and media and curatorial side of things. And so he's had one of these non-traditional career paths that I have been talking about so much lately. And he is just great at explaining sort of how he has done that path and how he's learned about the realm of contemporary media. So I I think people will really enjoy listening to the interview. Yeah, I thought his story was so fascinating as well, because he started doing the editorial work and working for Hanley Wood and uh, with a bunch of different architectural publications before the kind of major upsetting of digital journalism and kind of taking away from the the major niche publications in print that um, Hanley Wood oversees. They have all these very specific publications for very specific audiences within the architectural community where they can really hone in on a very specific and very loyal and often for those reasons, quite small audience and how he had to kind of oversee how that all needed to be leveraged on a both a print platform and a digital platform moving into like into the 2000s and into uh, the teens, the aught teens or however we're, we're going to refer to this decade later on. Yeah. Um, <laughs> who knows? So it was, he just seemed like a perfect person to talk to with having a, a bit of history behind him while also having Paul to talk with, of having this publisher of Arconnect being a presence in this conversation where we've never had a print version as such of exactly our content. So it's kind of a different modes of architectural journalism getting to meet and discuss. Definitely. So shall we listen? Yeah, let's do it. Let's do. 
So in one of your statements online, Ned, it says that you, uh, you, as a child, you told your mother you wanted to be the world's first architect pope. Yes. (laughs) Can you tell us about that? Um, So I was raised in this incredibly Catholic family. And one of the great, to my parents' great chagrin, when it came time for me to kind of think about college, I am the first member of my family in like four generations who didn't go to Georgetown. So they're like super rah-rah and it like broke their hearts that I was like, no, I want to do undergraduate architecture, da 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 So I think as a kid, there was this always this idea in the back of my head that I had to go to Georgetown and I knew I couldn't do architecture because I really, I've wanted to be or I had wanted to be an architect since I was, you know, eight, nine, something like that. So... I think it was like my weird kind of way of trying to appease my parents by saying, yes, but I'm going to be really faithful, you know. And of course, I haven't darkened the doorway of a church for a service in, you know, years, unfortunately. But I I still trot that one out occasionally just to make my parents happy. So you're not on that on that path anymore. No. (laughs) Okay. No, most definitely not. Well, they do say architecture, it's a long, slow profession, right? There's lots of time. (laughs) Yes. So let me uh, let, let me go ahead and ask, since you talked about undergraduate architecture school, um, uh, on your Twitter handle, you you call yourself an architecture addict. And obviously you love and eat, drink, breathe architecture. But you moved away from doing traditional architecture. And I, it, from what I've read, it sounds like in your education, you even said, I, I don't think I'm going to be an architect, but I want to keep doing this. So can you talk a little about moving from the traditional education into curation and media and what what you're doing now? Um, You know, I went to Rice in the undergraduate program. And, you know, like any program, uh, architecture program, there's this massive attrition rate. You know, I think we matriculated maybe 30 people, 28 people. And uh, our program graduated somewhere in the range of like 11 or 12. So... You know, throughout the process of college, I just I knew that I didn't actually have the patience to do architecture because the duration of even just a studio project of, you know, three months was far too great for me to to, to kind of captivate <laughs> or hold my attention. It was just I, I was way too ADD. And, um, you know, I talked to a lot of professors about, well, I love architecture. I don't want to give architecture up, but I just can't picture myself sitting at a drafting table all day. You know, you know, well, you could write about it. You could be a historian. And it just so happened. So I, Rice has a uh, it's a five year program with a kind of co-op program in between the fourth and fifth year. So I finished after four, just got my BA in architecture. And that fifth year, I just kind of I took a bunch of classes, art history, architecture, history, studio art. And during that year, I this is way more information than you need, but I met a guy who uh, I started dating. He had just finished law school and was moving to D.C. to practice law in the Civil Rights Division of the Justice Department. So it's like, hey, I'll hitch a ride. You know, I'll move up with you and see if I can get some kind of fellowship or internship or something. And I got one at the National Endowment for the Arts in the design program there. Samina Qureshi was the director of the program at that time. It was before the era of like Mark Robbins and and uh, Maurice Cox and, and some of those folks. And that kind of launched me into this alternative career because from there, they plugged me into the National Building Museum. The National Building Museum was an entree into Architecture Magazine, which at the time was based in Washington because of the, it was the official magazine of the American Institute of Architects at the time. So it was really just kind of like I kept falling upward, if that makes sense. <laughs> I kept kind of tripping over myself and landing in a good place. And I wish I could say it was part of some incredible 
particularly artful strategy, but it's definitely something that, you know, if I'd moved to New York and tried to do the same thing, I think it would have been much more difficult because the field of people who are kind of thinking about alternative careers or non-traditional careers in architecture would be so much greater. But the community in, our, in D.C. is just that much smaller. And so it was kind of easier to stand out. So you mentioned when I saw you at Grassroots, you were uh, presenting the uh, or, or doing a panel with the nominees for national office for the AIA. And one of the things you mentioned when you were talking there was um, that stuck with me was the when you got started in the field of, of publishing in the architecture world, you know, it was a monthly sort of schedule. And now, of course, we're looking, and these were your words, that we're looking at a, basically, it's a, a publishing something every minute schedule, right? That it's, the, the turnaround time is so fast. And so that clearly must work well with your ADD of, of not being able to. So could you talk a little about that, how you've moved Architect Magazine now very much into the uh, online world and, and how you're approaching that? First and foremost, hire people who are incredibly digitally savvy. Like my my cardinal rule is just make sure that everyone around me is smarter than I am and more technically expert than I am. So massive amount of credit to our staff. And we just have an incredible staff of, you know, young, committed journalists and, uh, you know, folks who have gone through architectural education and, and, you know, taken a left or right turn the way I did. And so there's just a hunger among the staff to, you know, oh, I saw BuzzFeed do this incredibly cool thing. Why don't we try that? So that kind of instinctive desire to experiment with digital media is definitely kind of ingrained. It's part of the DNA of the team. And so that's one piece of it. The other is is really a much more kind of businessy story about a big publishing company. Hanley Wood is the name of our publishing company, and and we have, I believe, eighteen titles, all of which are in the building construction to design arena or marketplace. But Builder Magazine, a magazine for remodelers. We have a title that focuses on uh, professionals who work on infrastructure. So so there's this big kind of cosmos of of audiences that we reach with various brands. And so to make moves, you know, I look at, you know, Archinect, I look at Archetizer, I look at Arc Daily, where the media brand is, for the most part, the company itself. And so it affords a different kind of entrepreneurial spirit than a media brand that's part of a huge, you know, media enterprise. So if we want to make substantive changes to our website, you know, we have to set wheels in motion. We have to, you know, determine capital budgets. We have to allocate resources in terms of staff, you know, who on our tech team is going to do the dev work, who's going to be the project manager. So in many ways, you know, it's a sort of, it's trying to steer a battleship versus trying to steer, you know, a speed boat, which is kind of how I've envisioned a site like Archinect, where you guys can be incredibly nimble. And so finally, in the last year or so, the ship has begun to turn fully in a positive direction. But pretty much everybody on staff has responsibilities that span uh, platforms, media platforms. So everybody does work for print, everybody does work for social, everybody does work for the website, each of which has its own metabolism. You know, each of those media print is is glacial (laughs) as a monthly enterprise. We have also multiple titles that we're all serving. So what we actually are as a team is addressing design, and we do that across multiple titles. We have sections in Builder Magazine that we're handling, We have standalone smaller media brands like Residential Architect or Custom Home that look at design in addition to Architect. So all told, I think we have about 24 print releases a year. We have about 400 newsletter 
releases a year. And then obviously daily social media and, you know, individual web posts, which are, you know, anywhere between three and 12 a day, depending on the platform across, what would it be, about six sites. So this is 12 people, which is the size of the staff we had when I started at Architecture under uh, Deborah Deach, was the editor-in-chief at the time. We had a staff of 12 people producing a monthly magazine with no website. And today we're doing, you know, an infinitely larger amount of work for an infinitely more complex audience across a variety of platforms. And uh, it's frankly, you know, in publishing, it's the exact same game as, you know, the same challenges and opportunities as you see in, as you would see in other industries. So, you know, it's not, it's not just me. It's, you know, you see it in newspapers, you see it in other media enterprises, but, you know, even beyond media. Ned, one thing that we've been noticing in architecture is this difficulty that certain age ranges are having and finding work because a lot of the firms are looking for young people that have the new skills and then more experienced people that have that have the experience. Are you finding that that same situation in publishing where you're you're bringing in people that that understand social media and new technology, but then you know, in within a traditional media sense, you still need to have the people with the experience and the and the knowledge acquired through the years. It's a huge struggle, and yes, you're you're right to to draw the comparison to architectural practice. So yeah, you have uh, you know what we would call in publishing subject matter experts, right? So these are the kind of veteran journalists. They really know not just how to report and write, but they also have deep contacts in the field. They know the subject matter. And those are incredibly rare commodities. But we also rely very much on younger professionals who are digital natives more often than not. You know, they're super nimble, moving from platform to platform, kind of packaging the same piece of content in different ways for different audiences. And it is a real balancing act. And our staff is about a 50-50 split between, you know, roughly half of us are baby boomer excuse me, our, we have no baby boomers on, on the immediate editorial staff, <laughs> I should say, but uh, we're about 50% Gen Xers, 50% millennials. About 50% of us have an architecture background. About 50% of us have a media background. And, uh, you know, then we really focus in, we kind of have groupings of teams. So our practice and technology coverage, our design coverage, and our long format reporting coverage, each of those is basically a team w- led by a Gen X who has a team of millennials reporting to them. And that person is kind of the gatekeeper of, you know, not for a tweet, but let's say a, you know, 400 word reported quick news story. You know, they'll give it the once over to say, no, 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 no architect would refer to, (laughs) you know, you know, fenestration sounds technically fancy, but architects don't use that term regularly, that kind of thing. (laughs) No. (laughs) Nice. (laughs) (laughs) I got to say, I know, Ken, you have a question, but I have to say it kind of pains me to hear you say you're senior staff for Gen Xers, because that's me. (laughs) 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 That's that's where I am. I'm senior. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> totally. I know. Well, I mean, at 43, I do feel a, a little bit like a fossil. But then, you know, it doesn't, I, I don't want to sound Jeez. ageist either because, you know, we have a lot of boomers on our uh, on our team, but those are people in the executive positions. You know, our CEO, our CFO, these, these are the people, you know, with 50, you know, who are in their 50s and 60s who are sitting back wisely making portfolio management decisions that, you know, I wouldn't have the slightest clue how to address. So it takes a village. 
Ned, I had a couple questions for you. I wanted to kind of step back what you were talking about publishing before. With so many different trade publications under Hanley Wood's belt, and they're, they seemingly are kind of segregated. Each magazine deals with a particular to- or a particular aspect of the building uh, construction industry. What are the challenges when it comes to working with those other magazines? Is there a frustration or something that you would like to see happen going forward? Maybe some kind of cross-pollination between the magazines that kind of um, pushes architects into other areas that aren't normally represented or seen? I'll say, first of all, you're hired um, <laughs> as a consultant <laughs> because uh, that kind of cross-pollination is, is going to be vital and essential to our survival. So right now, all of the editorial content that we produce and the editorial staffs report up through to two people, myself and a guy named John McManus. And John is basically a kind of combination of residential and construction. And I am a combination of design and commercial. And our Venn diagrams definitely overlap. And breaking down the silos of the individual brands is essential. But at the same time, you know, you don't want to feed architects a bunch of business stories written from the perspective of builders, their heads would explode, right? If you spoke to them the same way you spoke to a builder. And so you have to be kind of sympathetic to that. So what we're doing is actually creating, and this is such a cliched kind of business world term, so forgive me in advance, but these kind of centers of excellence around subject matter expertise. So the first one we've implemented is in the region of our design coverage. And we've only implemented it in a handful of books, but we now have kind of one team under one editor who happens to report to me, but she's supervising people across multiple titles. And she's really supervising the design coverage in all those titles. You'll see the same thing happen with our products coverage. Because so, you know, it it seems insane in this day and age to send five editors from five different media brands, all of which are Hanleywood Media, to a single trade show, right? When one editor who is capable of thinking of, okay, well, that's a cool angle for an architect. That's a great angle for, you know, a residential remodeler could cover the same waterfront more efficiently. The other variable in there is just actually digital tools. So we're almost finished. We're we're about three quarters of the way through migrating onto a new uh, publishing platform or CMS. And uh, architect just switched over. You, You may have noticed changes to our website about a month ago. That was a a manifestation of moving to this new CMS. And the back end of that CMS will allow us for the first time to actually see what people on other audience groups and other kind of functions and, and subject matter areas are working on. So you'll see a lot more sister content, we call it, which is to say, you know, I took, for instance, last week, a really amazing article reported for Builder about the death of the starter home as a kind of viable business enterprise for builders. Basically, they just can't make a return on the single family freestanding house anymore. And the reporter listed like eight reasons why that was the case in a kind of long reported format. And I took it, I stripped out those eight points, created a listicle, reworded it so that it was more germane for architects and republished it on the architect site. And that piece of content, out of all of the content that we published for the week, ended up being the highest ranked story. So there's definitely rewards and there's definitely value in repurposing content. There are pots of gold in terms of content that I'm dying to get my hands on that are created for other platforms. A great example would be the Journal of Light Construction is another title that we own. And oh my God, these guys published the most amazing kind of how-to construction content. 
anything you ever wanted to know about flashing, you know, they've got it, right? So the capacity to kind of bundle that same information for an architect audience would be amazing. And it's really just kind of an institutional and cultural shift that has to occur internally to make that possible. I'm curious about how a a publication like Hanley Wood is responding to this new type of journalism that is proving to be the most financially rewarding on the internet, which is, you know, the listicle, the kind of clickbait style journalism that is shorter length, you know, lots of lots of slideshows. And and as a result, the, you know, the journalistic integrity is is being questioned, you know, in in this uh, trend in media. How is uh, Hanley Wood handling that? Experimentally, it really depends on which audience group you're talking about. So my counterparts at Builder, for instance, do a massive, produce a massive amount of curated content. You know, they're constantly looking through Forbes and the Wall Street Journal and what have you. And then, you know, creating kind of precis, the kind of, you know, cutting and pasting big chunks of the article with a little bit of opinion, you know, scattered here and there to make sure that, you know, it's not a pure plagiarism job. We don't really do that on Architect. One of the great advantages... We actually have a couple of great advantages, one of which is shared by anybody in the architecture media space, which is to say it's an incredibly visual profession, right? So this simple act of publishing online, you know, photographs and drawings of a project along with, you know, project credits and maybe product information, that kind of basic set of information in and of itself has value. You know, I infinitely prefer it if we can get, you know, a post-occupancy evaluation by Vitold Brobczynski or, you know, a fresh critical perspective on uh, a brand new building by, you know, Thomas Show or some kind of urbanistic take by Kerry Jacobs. And we do that. And this is where being Architect Magazine at Hanley Wood is really nice, is that we do still have uh, somewhat, although it's decreasing, legacy media budgets. So having to put together print, putting together print is inherently incredibly expensive, right? And I can't quite do, because of just architecture, the expectations of architectural journalists, they're going to approach, I'm assuming, and I kind of know through experience and anecdotally, they're going to approach a commission from architect with a different understanding of what we would pay than, say, commission from Arc Daily, right? And, you know, we're able to pay still a dollar a word for a deeply reported take on a professional issue or, you know, a really thoughtful piece of criticism that, you know, other sites may or may not be able to if they're digital only. I mean, you guys are digital only, so you can speak to the veracity of what I'm saying or, or say, no, you're a fool. But Well, I mean, I think it's a, it's a complicated situation that we've dealt with a lot. And I'm, I'm curious about where you prioritize page views, because, you know, a lot, of, a lot of websites, their number one priority is page views because their revenue model is strictly based on, you know, CPM-based banner advertising. So the more people they can, they can come to the site and look at it, the better. But I think, you know, when it comes down to industry-specific professional websites, it's not as much about page views as it is about brand integrity, reputation, and securing a a valuable audience that can then be monetized through other ways. How do you put traffic in perspective? It's, I'll lift up the hood a little bit and get a little bit technical, but, you know, we have new leadership at Hanley Wood that is a digital first leadership. So, you know, they're coming from GeekNet and sites that that have never had a print component. And so, yes, they are most definitely looking at, you know, CPMs and just 
you know, page volume as valuable metrics. But the nice thing is that we have also, they're pretty sophisticated about engagement metrics as well. So they're looking at time on site, they're looking at click-throughs, you know, number of pages per visit, metrics like that, that also have value in their minds. And then from a business perspective, we're also not just chasing banner ads, you know, which which uh, I think a lot of uh, sites, not just in architecture and, and design media, but, you know, sites, media sites in general, you know, are just chasing impressions of banner ads, like how many, you know, how many people looked at this page, therefore they looked at uh, this advertised, you know, this banner ad X number of times, how many people clicked on that banner ad. Yes, that's one way of generating revenue. But we also have, uh, we're pursuing native advertising. So you'll, you'll begin to see curated sponsor content that's vetted by editorial flow. Obviously, it'll be clearly identified as coming from, you know, the advertiser, but you'll begin to see that flow through the editorial rivers more. So that's a very different kind of monetization strategy. And then there's also one that I'm really intrigued about, which is really custom publishing opportunities. And we, in a way, we as Hanley Wood are actually creating content not the editorial team, but we have actually a separate kind of, uh, for lack of a better term, advertorial staff who turns to the editors as subject matter experts and says, hey, we've been commissioned by Kohler to do a piece on trends in uh, water consumption, you know, around the country. And we want to look at geographic differences between, say, you know, the Southwest and water consumption in the Southwest and water consumption in the Northeast. Who do you know who knows a lot about that? And I would say, hey, you should call the people at the Lanst Institute at Woodbury University because, you know, they've got their finger on the pulse of water consumption in the Southwest. So those kind of opportunities where we can actually take advantage of growing awareness on the part of building product manufacturers and providers of services to design professionals, their desire to actually engage in a real conversation. And this isn't just marketing speak on my part. It's they actually get that, you know, the the days of an advertiser holding a megaphone up to the ear of an architect and shouting, buy my product, buy my product <laughs> doesn't really work anymore, right? Architects are way more sophisticated when it comes to, you know, product performance. They're way more sophisticated in terms of the kind of relationship they want to have with a building product manufacturer. So it's no longer, I want 800 units of SKU number 785. It's, hey, can you modify this roofing tile? Because actually, I think it'd be a really cool cladding, you know, for a wall, for an exterior wall, right? So the manufacturer understands that they actually have to speak the language of an architect. And we can help them do that at Hanley Wood by saying, no, 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 architects are never going to pay attention to that. Or we can introduce them to architects who can give them feedback through a focus group. So all of those opportunities are monetizable and kind of alleviate the pressure that a site would feel if all they were doing was chasing clicks. Does that kind of make sense? Yeah, yeah, totally. That doesn't mean we don't chase clicks, but, <laughs> you know, we're very, very, very hyper-conscious of the difference between uh, different kinds of content, right? And, you know, we still have a single full-time editor who's who does nothing but at the work of Kathy Ho and Carrie Jacobs and maybe Zeiger and, you know, the voices in the profession that, you know, people respect. And then we have relationships with folks like Aaron, who you, who you guys have had on the podcast in the past. And, you know, Aaron is our single most popular author. And he writes basically long format criticism. Aaron couldn't restrain, constrain himself uh, with 
within a 400 character limit if you held a gun to his head, right? I mean, the guy just lives, <laughs> speaks, eats, and breathes long format criticism. And he does it at an unbelievable pace. I mean, he's publishing two or three thousand word pieces a week for us. And he's doing it on some pretty controversial topics that people want to want to engage in. So for us, the thought of losing that kind of richness and depth of content and and trading it for nothing but kind of shallow quick hits, that would pretty much signal the death of the brand as far as I'm concerned. It doesn't mean we're not going to do quick hits, but the quick hits have to be really smart and tailored. And a, a good example of that, I mean, this is incredibly lighthearted, purely for fun, but two of our junior editors said, hey, it's March Madness. What if we did yes. Arc Madness instead, right? I loved Arc Madness. I loved oh, thank it. You. I, I hate sports. I am so not into sports. I loved Arc Madness so much. <laughs> I'm so glad. I actually, because I'm not a sports person either. So these two great junior editors, Caroline Massey and Chelsea Blahoud. I was like, okay, first you actually have to walk me through what March Madness <laughs> is. Because I'm not going to get the joke if there is one. But, you know, so they do things like that. That is, it's totally clickbait, but it's actually engages people around dialogue about, you know, which project, you know, which of the however many it was, uh, you know, 48 projects or whatever, actually has greater resonance. It gives people an excuse to go back and reevaluate, you know, what projects had won the 25-year award for the AIA. I was frankly shocked that a Faye Jones project won. Yeah, the Thorn Crown, the Thorn Crown won over Guggenheim, right? It was early. Yeah, who would have thunk? Really? Over the Guggenheim? Like, anyway, we tried to do it, but we tried not to do it in a cheap way, right? And it's easier said than done that you're going to do it in a thoughtful way. And I'm sure we fail all the time, but, you know, at least the aspiration is there. And hopefully the aspiration to do it smartly is is resonant and palpable. The last thing I'll say on this subject is something that you guys do at Archinect brilliantly, which is you engage the audience, you engage the community, right? Your discussion forums really can't be matched anywhere in our arena, in our community. And, you know, sites like Architizer, you know, they have a social thing going on with people being able to publish their own work. We do that on Architect as well. So, you know, I think user-generated content, I hate that expression, but <laughs> user-generated content is another way for media sites to kind of get around the, the budget crunch issue and the clickbait issue by saying, hey, it's not just about a famous journalist or a famous, you know, critic holding a megaphone and shouting from the mountaintop. It's actually, you know, it, it's it's peer-to-peer -peer dialogue is happening as well. And that might just be, frankly, the salvation of architectural media. I mean, and you guys were there first. So Ned, you were talking before about the nature of criticism and about Aaron Betsky. And one of the things that has popped up recently, and I'm, I'm sure if you haven't been following it, I'm sure you maybe have heard about it. Patrick Schumacher has uh, recently been uh, skewering architectural critics. His perception is that they're not explaining his work well enough to the general public. And I wanted to get your take on whether or not you thought that that was some part of me thinks that's a, that's a that's a good criticism, but do you think that there is is room enough in your magazine to fully explain Herr Schumacher's discursive take on neoliberalism and uh, the architectural discourse? <laughs> <laughs> um, that is such a loaded question. Thank you. Um, but okay, so to the degree that I've been following it, because you know Patrick Schumacher is not somebody I know personally. I've met Zaha. I've never met 
Patrick. And and I think of him, and I, I'm saying this is kind of a question, you know, I think of parametricism and kind of digital design and him being the standard bearer for that. I wasn't super aware that he had a kind of socio-political or, you know, political economic position on vis-a-vis neoliberalism? Is is he kind of taking architecture into that arena? And is that what he's complaining about, that people somehow don't get the relationship between the work of, you know, Hadid architects and uh, its relationship to the kind of powers that be in the larger economy? Or is The little I understand of it, it seems like he is completely on the side of neoliberalism and kind of uses that as a justification for Stark attacks and, and the kind of architecture that they're involved with. So he seems to kind of, there's a kind of a hand in, a hand in glove kind of relationship between the two that it's kind of interesting. But, you know, it's got to be tough to go from being in a position in your career as an architect, whether it's Zaha or Patrick, and, you know, they've they've obviously worked together, you know, practically since infancy, mm-hmm. that, you know, th- they began as the, the Tyros. You know, they, they were the innovators, they were the rebels, they were the groundbreakers. And, you know, in that kind of class of architect, and now they're like beyond establishment, right? And and it's got to be strange because there's obviously, you know, Frank Gehry is experiencing the same backlash. Hasn't happened quite as much to Tom Maine. But, you know, if you were in the deconstructivism show at MoMA, it pretty much automatically means that people think, OK, you're kind of received knowledge, right? Because all of those people, you know, of that generation or of those generations, you know, I don't know that I would say Gehry and, and Hadid are in the same generation, but but certainly in the same generation from a kind of technical and aesthetic perspective and philosophical perspective, you know, they're getting the commissions. They are, you know, the kind of the darlings, they are the stars. And so the minute you kind of move into that stage of your career, when you're no longer the underdog, people are automatically just it's human nature that I think, you know, people in the profession are automatically going to stop rooting for you and and say to themselves, well, gee, you know, Patrick Schumacher, Zaha Hadid, Frank Gehry, Daniel Liebskind, you know, they sneeze and they get a new commission. So why should I take it easy on them? Also, you know, they're getting the kinds of commissions that that come with uh, major political questions. I mean, it, it's one thing to design, you know, an addition to your own house in Santa Monica. It's another thing, and that is a political act, right? But um, it's a very different thing to take a commission from, you know, the president of a former Soviet republic, right? Who is president for life or whatever, or to take a commission from a client who's going to be using slave labor to construct the building, right? So, you know, I, I haven't read what Patrick's written on the subject. I haven't heard him speak on the subject, but it's a little bit, just my gut reaction to it is a little bit like hearing somebody who's incredibly famous uh, movie actor complain about people bothering them when they walk down the street or bashing them for making a bad movie. You know what I mean? And it's a little bit, I think, of a bait and switch tactic to to accuse architecture critics of not getting it. You know what I mean? It's one thing to suddenly be the subject of criticism, of negative criticism. It's another thing for somebody to not understand your work. 
You know what I mean? And I think of another person you've had on this show, like Christopher Hawthorne, who writes for Architect on occasion. You know, he's really hard on people like of that generation, people like, you know, Peter Eisenman and Tom Main. He does not pull a punch when he writes about their work. And when you've reached that level in your career, I kind of feel like you have to, A, be willing to be open to the criticism. Otherwise, you're just caught in the echo chamber of, you're famous and you're great. And that's not going to do those architects any good in terms of the value and cultural and economic and social relevance and political relevance of their work. You know what I mean? That this is Amelia, just to follow up on what Kim was saying. I think that one of the major aspects of Patrick Schumacher's kind of uh, rant, as it's often been called, was just this, the role of the critic as to educate people or to give them information and to translate information from a somewhat like niche community and an insular community to a greater community and get people to understand a concept, but in that way, not just understand it, but also maybe in his case, be convinced of the rectitude of a topic that otherwise they might not have been knowing about or wouldn't have had the intellectual access to. And so for in your position at Henley Wood, you obviously manage such a variety of publications that are all very niche, like they, they go towards a very specific audience. And that's what their strength is, they're able to target exactly that audience. And you say talk about like repurposing content in order to give that content or make that content accessible to different people. How do you balance that extreme specificity and therefore like strength of content with something like putting content on the internet where obviously it's more open for people to find and it's to your benefit to try to make it a little bit more open and accessible to a general audience and find new audiences where you might not have known they would have existed before. Right. So two things, one of which just speaking to the size and scale of our audience in architect, then I'll speak more broadly to the kind of uh, question of professional discussions versus kind of lay layperson's discussions. At Hanley Wood, we know, or for Architect in particular, we know that we are trying to reach an audience of about 250,000 people. They're in the United States. They more often than not work for an architecture firm. We pretty much probably know their name. We know where they work. We'll probably know their age. We'll probably know what building types their firm specializes in. We might know actually specific information about what projects they're working in. And the desire on the part of our advertisers to reach specifiers, which is to say people in that community of 250,000, is something that actually helps protect us from the clickbait trap you know what I mean? So our advertisers and and therefore my bosses, you know, the kind of publishing directors, president of media, don't pat me on the back for accruing to the brand a layperson's audience, right? That actually doesn't do our advertisers any good. So we're, we're in a way, we're kind of sheltered in a good way from the push and pull. That doesn't mean we don't get eyeballs, especially through digital media that aren't professional eyeballs, and that's great. But we're not going to be writing for or tailoring our content for those audiences, right? The way, you know, there's this, I hate it when people talk about Architectural Digest as an architectural publication, because it's not really, but... <laughs> it's um, not. It's totally yeah, not. <laughs> right? But, you know, they'll publish a house by Margaret McCurry or, you know, some other 
august architect and you know they use critics like joseph giovanini for instance you know writes for both them and for us philip noble wrote for arc digest and philip noble has to be cognizant when he's writing in that you know context of writing for a layperson's audience christopher hawthorne has to understand that he's writing for lay people you know when i did that one of the most interesting things about actually being a curator when i was at the chicago architecture foundation was the fact that in that context too i wasn't really programming for architects i wasn't creating content for architects. And the the barometer that I used and that I actually articulated to my coworkers in that context was, and I use it actually at Architect as well, is, and this is a little weird because I use specific people, but the content has to be accessible and understandable to my mother, but it has to be sufficiently sophisticated that Elizabeth Diller would not turn her nose up at it. Nice. Good metric. <laughs> and and so it's, you know, it's a re- that's a really tough road to hoe, right? I mean, those yeah. are two very different people. My mom's incredibly smart, but she went to Georgetown and studied foreign service. She's no architect. And so, you know, Patrick, I would imagine, is incredibly media savvy. I mean, nobody does, you know, that many partnerships with somebody like Chanel and, and not understand the value of media. But for him to expect that in speaking to lay people, that that suddenly then is going to mean that the critic is going to speak favorably about work, you know, might be a little bit of a false expectation or unrealistic expectation. You know what I mean? There is in architectural media this kind of, and you know, to a certain degree, I'm imagining in the newspaper world, but, uh, you know, probably not, actually. You know, we don't really publish features on buildings that we think are crappy. You know, that's frankly, in this day and age, it's one of the reasons that the digital world is so great is, you know, you can kind of say something snarky in a tweet that you couldn't get away with in print because print is really, you know, record historically under Robert Ivey, you know, didn't publish negative reviews. It's more about omission. There are certain famous, you know, currently recently being completed museums that you may be able to guess that we aren't publishing because we actually don't think we can talk about them without being pointing out things that are not flattering. You know what I mean? <laughs> well, there goes my next question, I guess. I, I can't ask it anymore. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I actually did want to ask you, though, about the convention, the AIA National Convention. You are going to it? Yeah? Yes, yeah. I'm so like um, all of those who listen are going as well? I think so. And I think this relates to your what you said about your 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 mother and Liz Diller, that uh, even within the AI convention, you're going to have those people that are specifiers and those people that are, you know, they're not Patrick Schumacher, but they're, they're someone similar to that. So you've got a wide audience, even just within the, the attendees at the convention. Our Connect Sessions is going to be at the convention, and we're, we're, we're planning to do some maybe on-the-spot interviews for the podcast or something like that. We haven't quite finalized what our approach is going to be, but what Hanley Wood, as a major contributor and sponsor, what do you, what do you guys think should happen at the convention, and what are you looking forward to? So speaking of your, your uh, plan to do podcasts, we, Architect, has something called Architect Live, which is pretty much a video uh, version of, of what it sounds like you guys are planning for Archinect. So we have a really big booth on the show floor. We have a little, you know, sort of crescent of seats facing a stage. And, you know, we bring in, you know, keynotes who agree to participate. We bring in, you know, gold med- the gold medalists, people who've won honor awards, 
et cetera, et cetera. And, and we do little panel discussions for people live on the floor. And, you know, we capture that and turn that into video content for people to watch online. So that's pretty cool. You know, I'm fascinated by the convention as a kind of manifestation of the Institute as an organization. And by Institute, I mean the AIA. Because the AIA is going through so much change right now. You know, yeah. Whether you're talking about branding or their big look up uh, campaign or, I mean, the biggie is, you know, shrinking that board from like 60 people down to like a dozen. So, I mean, Robert Ivey has taken on a ton and the board has been like, like remarkably supportive for a group that I think a lot of, you know, emerging practitioners and, you know, people who have a kind of skeptic personality might say was kind of a little bit of an old boys club or was perceived as an old boys network, you know, in the past. And they're working their tails off to change not only the perception of that, you know, it, it's not like I think back to when when the Republican Party won the second of Obama's elections and there was all this kind of hand wringing like, oh, is the Republican Party dying? And the official response seemed to be, no, we just we, we need to recraft our message so that we, uh, you know, can reach these communities that aren't voting Republican. And then, you know, critics of, of <laughs> said, actually, it's not the messaging that's the problem. It's the message. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so the nice thing is, it seems like AIA is, isn't just kind of gilding the lily or changing how they talk about themselves. They're actually making serious structural changes. And, and, and part of that, I think, weirdly, is manifest in the convention itself, which is to say, you know, they're, I think they're kind of changing up the processes uh, through which they pick the venue, city. They're changing the processes for how they select what courses will be offered and speakers will be offered. So I think there's a lot more kind of curating that's happening now. So it's not kind of like I applied and so I got to give a talk. You know what I mean? There are some really serious educational, new kind of advanced educational criteria that are being applied. So I actually, you know, I mean, obviously... If I thought really horrible things were happening, you know, as the official journal of the AIA, I, you know, I have to approach things from a with a certain degree of political delicacy. But in truth, I can say that that, you know, from this quasi insider's perspective or semi insider's perspective, they seem to be making they the board at AIA, uh, they the staff to be making really smart moves to try to make both the event of the convention and the institute itself more inclusive. You know, I mean, the sheer fact that there was an open forum conversation about whether or not it made sense to call, you know, graduates of architecture school mm -hmm. who haven't yet gotten their license to continue to call them interns or not. I mean, that never would have happened 10 years ago, right? Yeah, it would have been yeah. like, and eat your peas. Exactly. Exactly. I absolutely agree with you. And in fact, I'm one of those people that applied and they're going to let me talk at the convention. But my talk is about how things are changing at the AIA, at NCARB, at the, the um, all of it, how all of it is changing and trying to adjust to what's happening with young graduates right now and the generational shift. So yeah, I absolutely agree with you on the AIA really actually trying to make these great, what I think are great changes. I'm so glad to hear you say that, to talk about like the relationship with NCARB and stuff like that. You guys tell me, I'm going to ask you guys a question, which is, if it's all right, which is that my sense is that the community of architects and, and interns and associates and what have you, people in our universe, my sense is that not only 
you know, has there been kind of a recent historical disengagement with AIA and AIAS and, and those other, the collateral organizations they call themselves, you know, NCARB, NAAB, and ACSA, I guess would be the, the five. But my sense is people don't even necessarily know what they are how they do what they do, why they do it, who gives them the authority. And I've wanted to do a sort of schoolhouse rocks kind of, here is the constitution (laughs) of the AIA. Like, these are the people who actually get to choose who the president is. This is why you directly don't have a vote, but this is how you are represented in that selection process. This is, you know, the relationship. Why doesn't AIA grant accreditation? Why is it a separate organization called NCARB? And what is their relationship? Is it your guys' sense that, I mean, I just feel like people just don't know that. I think you're absolutely right. The discussion, endless discussion on Arcanact regarding just about NCARB. What is NCARB and what is it they actually do and why they're necessary and why it's ridiculous not have them part of the process. So uh, understanding all of that, you know, as as good as it is to have a discussion boards about it, it just needs to be put down in black and white so people can actually see it for, you know, for what it really is and how these things function and why they're key. Well, and Paul, maybe you would want to say this, but we just, Paul was just at one of the ACSA meetings two weeks ago. And I was at the Emerging Professionals Summit last year. And one of the things that we hear commonly is that this whole mishmash of alphabetical soup organizations, no one understands what they are. No one understands what they all cover. And people are not being steered into the field of architecture because they look at these weird, you know, you might need to get a bachelor's, you might need to get a master's. It's just, it's just such a confusing path that they just sort of throw up their hands and say, I give up, I don't get it. So I think anything that could help to be an infographic that makes that that relationship easier to understand. Well, ACSA even attempted the infographic and it, it was too complicated. It looked like a play of spaghetti. <laughs> Trying to follow the paths of, uh, you know, education, you know, to to licensure. It's It's so complicated that, you know, that's something that maybe has to be addressed simplified. It's an interesting political problem, too, because I know, you know, AIA really does justified hand-wringing about the future of the organization because they're worried that, you know, Gen Xers to a certain degree, but certainly millennials and post-millennials, you know, aren't, they don't have the association mentality. They're not necessarily joining AIA the way, you know, senior, you know, architects who are, who are older than them have. And I almost kind of want to empower younger architects, first of all, to know, first of all, if these seem like exclusive clubs only for older architects, it doesn't have anything to offer you, and they don't want you there, quite the contrary, they're actually desperate for you to participate and get involved, A. And then B, I I kind of would really love to see something happen among students and emerging professionals where they kind of did like a Republican Party grassroots Tea Party thing. You know what I mean? The way the Tea Party like suddenly said, well, shit, there are all of these local uh, mechanisms of local politics at the state level, at the nomination level, who's on the, you know, state Republican committee that then is, you know, has the power to basically force, you know, a nomination through for a local, you know, for a state senator or for what have you. Those kind of mechanics of of owning the system and kind of revolting from within. I really think it would be kind of amazing if, if you saw a kind of grassroots like, you know, we're going to take over at the local chapter level and just shake 
things up. My guess well, would be that folks like Robert Ivy would be like, yes! <laughs> I, I agree. Ned, you know, honestly, I have to say that in Minnesota, I wasn't an architect in New Jersey. I was still an intern. But the difference between New Jersey and Minnesota in terms of the AIA is so radically different that I, I would hazard a guess that many architects in New Jersey don't even know there's an AIA that exists. Here in Minnesota, we have a, an amazing publication. We have an amazingly committed local and very active organization. So on a local level, AIA is fantastic. I think what happens is, is that when it gets to the national level, it's when you see, like one of my criticisms, when I put it out there a few weeks ago, was when Indiana was going through their issues around gay marriage and and RIFRA. And, and I was criticizing, you know, when AIA is talking to the public saying, look up, I said, I know it's part of the bylaws. I know it's part of the code of ethics in the AIA about non-discrimination. Here is something where the, the professional organization that represents me, I've recently joined again, that represents me can take a stand. And it doesn't have to because it's in the code of ethics. But I'm like, well, why doesn't it get out there and say, say, if these are our values, we should represent these values publicly. And if you're looking for an architect who reflects the values that reflect who you are, then why aren't we out there standing up? So I think a lot of times I, I wonder, is there still an old guard in there? It's a little bit more conservative. It's a little more boomer focused, and it's not willing to kind of make the change that I think a lot of millennials and, you know, I'm a Gen Xer and I'm pretty, you know, cynical and I'm still going to be pushing at the AIA. But I think a lot of the millennials want change to happen much more quickly and they see it it happens and change happens in social media change happens on the internet very quickly change happens they see change happening fast but then they get to an organization that's run by boomers and they don't see that change happening as quickly as they'd like and i think you know on the local level strong as hell national i think it's kind of like how do we kick them in the ass and move them forward and you know i think the interesting thing is everything you've just said i think they would agree with and I can't speak for AIA. You know what I mean? I'm I'm a partner of the AIA and I'm a member, but, you know, obviously I'm not Robert Ivey. I'm not a board member. But every conversation I've had, they're so aware of themselves and, and both the strengths and the limitations of just being an association and, you know, the political conundrums that they have to face. And, you know, my gut tells me, you know, somebody like Robert Ivey would, would love to come out and, you know, do a smackdown on the state of Indiana and say, you know, come on, you know, diversity is important, it's critical. But then I feel this pressure too with just with subscribers and advertisers where it's like, okay, well, we know that a certain percentage of our membership is going to be violently opposed to that kind of messaging. You know what I mean? Not every yeah, member yeah. of our, you know, institute is a, uh, is a liberal. Not everybody's, you know, whatever, whatever, whatever. And my guess is there's a certain amount of, of a learning process that goes on with any organization that has that much history and that much tradition as AIA, where they're never going to move as quickly as we'd like them to. But my sense is the pendulum definitely is swinging because I know they're aware of the frustration, you know, that people feel. You know what I mean? And the fact that the move doesn't necessarily happen at the pace, you know, someone like myself or a millennial might desire doesn't necessarily mean that they're not listening, that they don't hear, or even that they don't want to act. It's more of a, I think, a really, in some ways, smart, but not necessarily emotionally rewarding decision on the part of a board member or as a group, the board, to say, you know what? Okay, 
in this instance, we can go an inch. In that instance, you know, we can go the length of the football field. Mm -hmm. In that instance, we can go a mile. But we have to kind of acclimatize the culture so that the broader membership is brought along instead of being left in the dirt. You know what I mean? So it's a really... It's a tough job. I, you know, Robert <laughs> Ivey is, is like, you know, because he's also the embodiment of all the change. You know, everybody's like, oh, if just Robert Ivey would just, you know, rip the Band-Aid off. And it's like, well, I can't really <laughs> do that because I might infect my arm, you know. So it's totally nice. natural, I think, for members to have desires and articulate those desires. And then it's Robert's unfortunately unenviable, you know, position, I would guess, to, to kind of be like, well, uh, what if we try it this way? And, well, you know, he's got a broker the compromise. So Ned, before I leave you today, I just uh, wanted to pay a compliment and ask you a quick question. I keep looking through this latest issue and I find it uh, completely thoroughly engaging and amazing. I thought the the long, very long piece on uh, Todd Williams and Billy Chen to be fascinating. I, I did, haven't seen their work presented in that way in a magazine and I haven't I haven't seen any publication do that. And I don't know if it's a change in format, but I really wanted to say, I really wanted to say that it was a fantastic issue. And um, the quick question I have for you is, um, and I've been asking it for a while of, uh, of our guests, who are you listening to and what are you reading? Okay, that's an awesome question. I'll respond to your compliment quickly, if I may, which is to say we're trying to let print be print more. We, we, we know that people aren't turning to print for news, for God's sake. So this idea of kind of being first out of the publishing gate, the print gate to publish a project, I'm never going to beat you know, arc daily to publishing a project or my own website to publishing a project. So we're trying to let the magazine be a little bit more almost echoes of like A plus U back in the day, kind of a little bit more journal feeling and maybe picking up on themes a little bit more aggressively. So so we'll do more and more of that. So, and so thank you. It's it's really on multiple levels. It's it's both gratifying and a little bit validating too to hear your feedback about the Todd and Billy issue because that was a, a big experiment in that direction for us. So so thank you for that. In terms of what am I listening to, who am I reading, what media am I consuming right now? I just finished an amazing amazing book by John Krakauer about rape on college campuses. It's called Missoula, and it focuses uh, on University of um, Montana and this succession of, of acquaintance rape. Horrible, horrible stories that happened in the span of like three years and looking at how respectively the university, the local police department, and as well as the district attorney or the federal prosecutor, no, what is it? The county prosecutor's okay. office handled those situations. It's a little bit weird to read this whole screed about rape written by a man. And there's <laughs> definitely some like, I hate using this word. I'm trying to like find a better word, but like mansplaining that happens. And, <laughs> you know, it's fair to probably kick him around a little bit. But as a guy reading about it from another man's perspective, it might have actually in a weird way, I'm saying this as a question, not an assertion, but might have actually made it easier for me as a man to understand it, having it be explained by a sympathetic man. I, I, I don't know. That's just speculation on my part. But uh, anyway, it kicked ass. And then it made me go back and read Into Thin Air, which is yeah. like one of my all-time favorite books by Krakauer. And then next up is 
I've just downloaded like 15 samples on my iPad. I'm a total iPad guy. And I'm kind of wavering back and forth. I have like a huge kind of sci-fi geek side to me. So there's a Neil Stevenson novel that's coming out in a, a couple of weeks that I'm looking at. And uh, what else? Oh, and then there's a series of novels that were the basis for Game of Thrones. They're these mm -hmm. historical fiction books by a, a guy named Maurice Drew, D-R-E-U-X, that look at the um, basically the Hundred Years' War uh, between England and France and talk about the relationships between like the nobility and the royal families, you know, the Plantagenets and, you know, all of these various kings and princelings and whatever. And the stories are basically true, you know, who stabbed who in the back, who poisoned who. And it's every bit as like insane and mind-blowing and, you know, like sentencing your daughter-in-law to prison <laughs> or having, you know, your son poisoned because you think he'll be a terrible king or just my mind-blowing. So for like beach reading, that's probably my turn too. <laughs> In the world of music, I am sort of just now listening to the soundtrack for a, a documentary called Timbuktu. And the soundtrack is, oh my God, it's so beautiful. It's written by a composer from Timbuktu, classical composer, and then a pop artist uh, who lives in Britain, who's also from Timbuktu. And it's a mix of kind of classical pieces that are infused with a kind of Middle Eastern, you know, world music flavor, which isn't usually my thing. Like, I'm not a, you know, pan flutes kind of guy. <laughs> um, but this woman, the vocalist, is unbelievable. And the songs are really poignant because it's really specifically looking at Boko Haram and like the devastation that, you know, these Islamist extremist groups are, you know, causing in the Middle East. It's, it's like super moving music. And then the last thing I'll say, and then I'll shut up, is I collect art a little bit and I'm getting into, weirdly, Old Master Prince. And so there's an auction house called Swan. It's based in New York and they do works on paper, photographs, drawings, and prints and stuff. And there's this crazy sick etching by a French Baroque artist named Claude Melun, M-E-L-L-L. A-N or U-N? I can't remember which. But so it's it's the Veil of Veronica. And this is this maybe brings us full circle to me being, uh, back to me being the, the wanting to be the first architect <laughs> pope. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but it's so it's the Veil of Veronica, which is during like when Christ was carrying the cross up to Calvary for his crucifixion. He falls and this woman named Veronica comes and wipes his face, like wipes the sweat mm -hmm. off his face. And it's this huge miracle that, that the cloth has supposedly, I've, you know, I've never seen it or whatever, but, um, and I'm sure carbon testing of the cloth, which is somewhere in the Vatican would, you know, disprove it all, but has the impression of the face of Christ. So this is a picture, this is an etching of a miraculous impression of Christ's face on a piece of cloth. And this is what is cool. It's not just it's kind of a weird layered representation, kind of Cecilia's uh, Nespaum heap kind of thing, but also the entire engraving is a single line. It's wow. a spiral that it's a spiral that begins at the tip of uh, Jesus's nose and then radiates outward and the image appears simply through the weight of the artist, you know, pressing down on the, the metal plate of the impression. It's like, it's unbelievable. <laughs> so keep your fingers crossed that um, the auction <laughs> estimate of $2,000 is 
wrong and that I might be able to get it for like 150. I don't know. You might have some competition now. It sounds amazing. <laughs> yeah, it's totally cool. I'll send you guys a picture when we get off. <laughs> anyway, so I can't thank you guys enough. I'm like, I'm a huge fan of, of the podcast and I'm a huge fan of Archinect. I mean, you guys are, you know, people used to complain, oh, progressive architecture went away and, you know, now we only have two publications. But in a way, that's totally not true. It's, I mean, you guys are another leg on the kind of, you know, table of the architectural dialogue. And um, I'm a huge fan. So it was an honor to, to talk to you guys today. Well, it was so great to have a chance to talk with Ned. We know we're going to run into him when we're all at the um, AIA National Convention next week. It's, oh my God, it's really, <laughs> it's coming up really <laughs> fast. It's already the middle of May, but that will take place well, um, in Atlanta starting next week. And everyone on the podcast crew is going to be there. And we hope to meet with Ned there and kind of get another check-in and also just revel in AIA goodness in Atlanta. So it should be really exciting. It, it will be. And, you know, I have to say one of the things, and I mentioned this in the interview, that one of the things Ned talked about at Grassroots was how the media schedule used to be this monthly thing. And now with digital media, it's become by the minute. You know, you have to be able to update your website every minute. And so we are going, we, Arconnect Sessions podcast is going to the AIA National and we're going to do some recording there. And we don't quite know what we're going to do or how it's going to happen, but we're trying to figure out how we can capture the moment of the AIA meeting while we're there. So stick with us, everyone, and listen to us experiment. And for those of our listeners that are going to be there, come and find us and talk to us. We'd love to talk to some of our listeners while while at the convention. Are you guys bringing bail money? <laughs> <laughs> I think uh, Mayweather is going to bail us out. <laughs> Who is? Mayweather. Didn't he say that he was going to bail out Suge Knight? Oh, if he oh won? man. If he still has money left over, maybe he can bail us out too. <laughs> yeah. As if they'd care about some architect. I can totally imagine this convention having an underground fight club of versions, not on the same monetary level as something like the fight, but definitely with as much status on the line, for sure. Absolutely. Tons of status. Because <laughs> we architects are so statuesque. Hey. <laughs> We're so important. I'm taking jujitsu now. <laughs> Sorry, Ken. That's right. You can kick anyone's ass. No, no, hardly. But I will be a delegate next week. Seriously, you're going to be a delegate? Yeah, I go in um, information session on Wednesday. As soon as Donna told me the news, I said, yeah, I'm going to go vote. I'm going to be a delegate. So why don't you explain to everyone what, you're, what, what you may be voting for or against? Uh, resolution 15-6, Title Seven World Trade Center. Apparently one of these kooky FAIAs uh, decided he wants to get a resolution passed about uh, September 11th, uh, World Trade Center 7. So once again... The AIA is confronted with the crackpots in the organization that uh, will not go away. And I see this architect out of Houston seems to want to push this issue. He's on one of those 9-11 commissions, and um, I won't say his name. <laughs> I don't because I don't want to give him any, don't want to elevate him. But, uh, you know, it's just deeply frustrating. It is. And it, it's totally this backdoor way of getting in. You can get a resolution on there if you get 50 AIA members to sign that, yes, this should be a resolution that we should vote on. And backdoor method, it's like, you know, any kind of petition you put out there for people to sign. If, if enough people sign it, suddenly it's on the ballot. And um, yeah. it's embarrassing that it should be given any kind of legitimacy. Well, in the same package of resolution, there's a resolution in there about transparency. So with regards to voting, and here we have a resolution that has this particular individual and 50 members of the Institute. Well, who are the 50 members? We're going to talk about issues about transparency. Why don't these people attach their names to this if they feel it's so important to kind of put out there? And this is the single most important issue that our professional
professional organization should be focused around. I guess I am saying it's the single most because it seems like every time this pops up every so often, it seems like the single most important issue in my mind to kind of defeat and get these people out of the organization. But there's a lot more important things going on inside the profession. And I think this completely marginalizes us and makes us look like a bunch of, you know, lunatic fringe types. And my prediction is that it will, and I hate to use this term, but this is the third time today I've used it. This resolution will go down in flames. It's absolutely not going to be passed. I can pretty much guarantee that. And in fact, there was an interview in three years ago in Architect Magazine in which Scott Frank, the AIA's, one of their media directors said very clearly, we have told this person that his views do not represent AIA and he is not allowed to present himself as being a representative of the AIA when he talks about these ideas. So it'll go down in flames and it'll be fine. But in the meantime, it's just frustrating that we have to focus on lunacy. So Ken, just from a technical standpoint, how does being a delegate work and you sign up to being a delegate? What exactly does that entail? I get to vote on these resolutions, as I understand it. So not anyone can just vote? They, they have to? No, it's like an electoral college thing. Not every member votes. Gotcha. So Ken, I'm glad you're representing your state. That's excellent. I'm stepping up. Step up, man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, as soon as Donna posted that on, on, our, on Slack, I immediately said, okay, I'm going to be a delegate. And I called up Beverly, who is our um, outgoing president here. She's retiring in two weeks. I called her and said, I want to be a delegate. And she said, okay. It was kind of serendipitous because today we got our AIA newsletter for Minnesota and it talked about, hey, do you want to be a delegate? Come on Wednesday, 8 to 9 a.m. So I already knew what it was going to happen. I'm like, yeah, I'll be there. (laughs) You will be there. Excellent. Oh, I'm excited. Good for you, Ken. Stepping up, getting involved. Once you're sucked into the organization, it's hard to get out again. And I won't, I won't be anonymous. <laughs> I am sure you won't be. That's why I need you to have bail money, because I could get crazy. <laughs> we, can, we can pay with like Apple Pay or something, can't we? Because that I'll just bring my phone, bail you out. So endorsements, switching topics. Anybody have endorsements this week? Amelia, what's your endorsement? Oh, okay. I'm glad you asked, Donna. So I would like to endorse a recent feature we published by Nicholas Cordry as on this wonderful, really exciting, very cool landscape architecture duo called Green as Fuck. It's kind of a more of a field trip based or kind of um, action based firm. So they're not, they don't have a standard office. They don't stick around in any one place for too long. They operate pretty nomadically. What they call themselves is spelled G-R-N-A-S-F-C-K. And so I just like, I want to relish the amount of time I can use on the podcast to actually just pronounce their name, which is green as fuck. And I just think that everyone should look at this interview because it's a very in-depth and I think very honest kind of account of these two people who are working on a very strange and a very fringe level of what anyone might call landscape architecture, but nonetheless really struggling with a lot of the same issues that people in practice do and, and any kind of a conscious citizen would of issues of sustainability and climate change and very real activities going on constantly on not just in the U.S., but everywhere in the world that are having incredible effects on our daily lives and our and the health of our planet and in ways that are either publicized or not at all or strange or absolutely mundane. So check out Nicholas's Green as Fuck profile. It's called Between Sampling and Dowsing, Field Notes from Green as Fuck. One other thing I want to endorse specifically in this piece is how the how the firm chooses to document themselves because they do a lot of field work and they go out into different weird landscapes and and do work very much in in situ they have a trail cam that they use to photograph either themselves or the work that they're kind of doing so there are a few photos like and especially of their profile that are caught in this format that I'm more familiar seeing like images of mountain lions and like in da- species that you otherwise were thought endangered and they and you instead see that these two kids like 
with a little timestamp and like the possibility of the longitude and latitude coordinates to tell you where this photo was taken. I just thought that was a really neat device that they used to document their work. So totally recommend that. Super cool stuff. So that was a great article by Nick. And somehow my mind didn't read green as fuck. I saw a graph of snack. So I'm thinking of them <laughs> snacking. I'm thinking about snacks. But it, but then, of course, as soon as I read it, it's like, oh, okay, it is green as fuck. But I loved that one of their, they did this work around the idea of the urban wildlife of bacteria and tiny, you know, m- microscopic animals and creatures and things that live with us. I I love thinking about that as part of the landscape as well. So it's a very good article and really interesting work. Yeah. And they have such a specific tone that they use to talk about their work, I think is really, it's not just, it's not that kind of dry theoretical language. It's it's quite poetic and, and clearly very passionate. And yeah, they do work with everything from bacteria to like large game animals to yeah. the like systems underground that have been created by fracking and all, all these very interesting scales. So really cool stuff. It's a great way to look at landscape, not just as this, you know, designing a golf course, but as something that really impacts how we exist on the planet. So really, yeah, nice article. Yeah, that was a good endorsement. Great interview. And uh, I found that the, the practice is being so refreshingly honest and sincere about how they look at landscape architecture in such a different way. You know, and it really, uh, there's no bullshitting with their work, which I think is so common with practices these days. There was two things that I liked. And one of the things is kind of funny, Nicholas's last question, which I think is pretty cool. You're asking, what are they reading and what tabs do you have open? So I, I think, I think Nicholas has been listening to our podcast a little bit. <laughs> Maybe. But what I rather enjoy about work like this, I haven't read the piece, but I got a sense of, at least from the piece, that these are the kinds of people that I would love to hang out with because I was talking to someone at work today and they were talking about, you were talking about what you were into as a kid. And, you know, that's that thing that pops up all the time. Oh, I was playing with Legos. And I never really played with Legos a lot, but I played with, you know, G.I. Joe's. I was more narrative based. I was thinking about it, like I was never really technically interested in architecture, but I was very interested in things that kind of drove a narrative and like creating your own storylines. It was plastic soldiers or G.I. Joe's or Star Wars figures. So this kind of work always appeals to me because it, there's a hard science there. But like Amelia said, there's a poetic tone or a quality to it that makes that dry material pop and seem much more alive yeah. for me. Yeah. I th- and I think, is it Ian is the half of the duo? He said he found it was um, more fun to pretend to be a scientist than to actually be one. Like, you know, the, <laughs> yeah. the, the yeah. actual science side of it was quite frustrating and boring. But yeah, the kind of pretend science, narrative science became much more interesting to him. Yeah, it's a really good article. So we're all just raving about it. Everyone who's listening, <laughs> go read it. It's really good. Green as fuck. They are just green as fuck. Or graph a snack. Yeah, which, yeah you can call snack. it graph a snack if that's what you prefer. <laughs> I'm sure they don't mind. Donna, I believe you had an endorsement. I have an endorsement of the, and serendipitously, the uh, AIAS, the American Institute of Architecture Students, launched a survey this week to have people, to critique studio culture. And this, when I did the Emerging Professionals a year ago, this is something that came up, is the question of, is studio culture, you know, this culture that we force students to do all-nighters and to be sleepless and to devote themselves entirely to studio at the expense of all their other life, any other life balance, is that healthy or should it be changed? And um, so if you're a student, you can go fill out the AI. IAS survey to talk about studio culture. And then the very next day today, Justine Testado posted this incredible collection of tumblers devoted to photographs of students 
sleeping in studio. And I have to say, I think studio culture can be very unhealthy, but looking at all these photographs of people creatively sleeping under their desks or using their hoodies to block out the light while they rest their head on their project in studio, it just made me miss architecture school and miss that culture so much. So I think it's not an easy answer whether we should stop doing that or not, because certainly a lot of camaraderie raises up around the the questions of that studio culture and sleeping and devoting yourself so much to it amongst your peers. But it's kind of, uh, yeah, you know, we don't want anyone to be unhealthy. So two endorsements. One is for the uh, AIS Studio Culture Survey, and the other is for Justine's article called When the Pressure is On, Dedicated Architecture Students Show How to Power Nap Like a Pro. (laughs) Those students could learn something from George Costanza. Yes, exactly. With his little shelf and everything under his desk. And I noted one of the ones, one of the pictures, there's a kid in there. He's got a thermarest and a sleeping bag and sunglasses to cover his eyes and earphones over his head and he's under his desk. Like he's serious. He's not just power napping. He's sleeping. He's getting a good night's sleep in a bunk under his desk. He's accepted the inevitability of, of having a sleep at your desk and has taken it to the to the full extent. It's, it was outfitted himself appropriately. Yeah, inspiring. <laughs> Very. Inspiring. My favorite photos in that post were the ones where students who had made actual pieces of equipment or pieces of clothing from modeling materials for sleeping. So they had been able to craft some type of like hooded bag that they could place over their body that then they could lean against their desk and fall asleep. Or someone who had just decided that they they had a model that kind of looked like a sea anemone, like with tendrils, like vertical tendrils or something, and then had just like decided, you know, I don't need this anymore. I'm just going to lay on top of it. Going to lay down in it. Yeah. (laughs) Have you guys seen that ostrich pillow? Yes. That was on all the blogs about a year ago, maybe. I I wonder if that was invented by a architecture student. I have not seen the ostrich pillow. Does it let you sleep standing up or something? No, it's like a pillow hood that you put over top of your head and it just lets you sleep on your desk or in any position. It also has holes for your arms. So you, it's like a three hole cloth balloon. So you put your fists and your hands in the two outside holes and then your head through the middle hole. And so you're just, you're weirdly, if you were standing upright, it would look like you were holding up your hands in one of those TSA security pass point things, but you're just allowed to like lie down. And I guess it creates like kind of a piece of tension for you to just like work again so you can just lay your hands down and not just sprawl out completely, but kind of keep your everything. It's very strange looking. It cannot be ergonomically good. In fact, I'd I'd guess that a lot of these efforts to find desperate sleep positions might also be worse in the long run in terms of ergonomics, but I don't think that's their main concern at the time. (laughs) They're probably just near death. So, but yeah, Donna, I love that those student posts kind of perfectly timed with one another because the commentary too on the survey post about like the AIAS is, um, Studio Culture Survey, most of the comments so far just have not been very forgiving. They're like, Psh, come on, toughen up, do it. And then over in the uh, Sleeping in Studio post, it's all like, oh, such wonderful days. But at the same time, that can't be healthy. And like, oh, we should we should definitely change something. Um, so this is interesting. Bowling Ball made an excellent comment that, you know, the practicing architects all say, oh, these grads don't know anything about the real world. And then the AIA says, you know, we we need to look at education and maybe see if we can improve education. And then all the practicing architects response is, well, I went through it. They can go through it, too. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> we, we are so uh, we are just so schizophrenic within ourselves. <laughs> As a discipline. Oh, man. I always enjoyed the studio culture. In fact, I practiced it last week. Um, That's right. You did. You said you pulled an all-nighter. Yeah. Well, I worked seven days straight. And I think there was like three nights that I worked till about 12.15. I would take off to go work out, do jujitsu, whatever. And then I'd come back and work another four hours. I think I did that three nights. And then I also pulled another one about five hours on Saturday. So 
It isn't for everybody. I think ultimately it really what it comes down to is they should be taught side by side in, 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 uh, in architecture is um, uh, time planning skills. You know, making time to enjoy the college life is fine and dandy, but it shouldn't get in the way of your, you know, completing your degree in five years and not seven or eight. And I thoroughly enjoyed staying up late. And there was such a camaraderie built around a shared experience that um, I wouldn't trade it. I, and I wouldn't say that it's for everybody, but um, I certainly wouldn't trade it. And I'm not going to beat anybody over the head for wanting to do that. Um, you know, totally agree with you. Yep. I wouldn't trade it for a second. Even if it meant I could hit my snooze alarm that many more times. Nope, I would not do yeah, it. Part of it is learning how to sleep. You know, part of it is trying to figure out how to find your sleep cycle and make it work for you. And, and um, yeah, exactly. Or for any any other kind of major thing you have to really commit yeah. yourself to in your life. I, I think there's a there's a sen- there's a learned sense of how far you can push yourself to complete something that is, I think, beneficial in a lot of ways. Yeah, a couple of firms ago, I think it was two years ago, I worked for a firm and we had a project deadline there, but we didn't really, we weren't super well staffed. And I worked a one month straight on a project. And I'm not kidding. Like every single day I worked on that project. And is it something I want to do every month? No, hell no. But it, it was certainly an interesting experience. Oh, the good old days. Well, as we talk about this, there are students right now getting prepped for their final presentations. So good luck, all of you out there that are doing that right now. And and do push yourself, but also don't hurt yourself. As a mom, I have to say that. Don't 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 put your health at risk, but do push yourself because you can do more than you think you can. Just don't fall asleep with some type of noxious chemical or crazy glue in your hand. Um, like the one kid did. You see it in the... <laughs> Just if you have to, if you have to, just like remove all things that could stab or puncture or whatever. You don't want to end up with with part of your your model stapled or crazy glued to your face. I'm sure that has happened. I'm sure that has happened. Oh, you know, we are killing Paul right now, but with this talk about sleep. So, Paul, you need to you need to go to bed. You just got to check yourself before you wreck yourself. That's right. Words of wisdom. <laughs> all right. Well, I think that's a show for this week. Yeah. All right. Thanks for listening. As always, if you have questions, comments, or suggestions, you can reach out to us at connect at rconnect.com or via Twitter with hashtag rconnectsessions. And if you like the podcast, please consider rating us on iTunes and uh, subscribing. You can also listen to us on Stitcher. And yeah, that's about it for this week. Thanks for listening and talk to you next week. Until next week. Cheers. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.